Good morning, everyone. Uh, I hope everyone enjoyed their extra hour of sleep last night. Um, today we'll be looking at how James closes his epistle. And James closes the, his epistle in a very interesting way because typically when the uh, apostles would give out these letters, they would say farewell at the end and give a le- little bit of encouragement. James does something very different. He closes out with instructions and he gives no farewell, no conclusion or anything. He just ends it. So we're going to look at uh, the instructions that James gives us. And he gives three primary instructions. One, he gives a prohibition on oaths. And in that section, we're going to look at, is James banning all oaths? Are all oaths sinful? Are oaths sinful? And if not, If not, then what is he telling us not to do? Then in his second section, which will be verses 13 through 18, he goes into a very extensive bit about suffering and sickness and healing and prayer and confession. And at the end, we will look at what it, at the end, uh, verses 19 through 20, we'll be looking at what the church's duty is to a wanderer, to someone who wanders from the truth and what it means to wander and what truth means. So to take it back from the top, James, James's first instruction is about oath-taking. And what he says is, he, re, he goes out and he says, But above all, brethren, do not swear by either, oath, by either heaven or earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. So an uh, important question here is, what does James mean by swear? Is cursing bad? Yes. And in Ephesians, it even says so. But when James is talking about swearing here in this section of the Bible, it has nothing to do with language. In fact, what James is discussing is the act of oath-taking, the act of making a vow, a promise, or a covenant. And he says, don't do it. Now, the question is, is this ban, is this prohibition all-encompassing? Is every oath, is every promise, is every covenant banned? And a simple answer to this is no. And we know this because God made oaths in the Old Testament. God actually had a standard for oaths. And we are instructed to get married. And what is marriage? Marriage is a covenant. So James isn't discussing all oaths and covenants and promises. But what is he discussing then? If God had a standard for oaths, which we're instructed to keep them in the Old Testament. They say, do not delay in keeping your oath to the Lord. Then why is James and Jesus, because James is quoting Jesus from Matthew here, telling us not to take oaths? And a really simple way of figuring this out is when we look at history. In history, Jews were known for swearing. In fact, they had something known as common swearing. And what this is, you might ask, is it is where the Jews and the Pharisees would swear upon things that they perceived greater than themselves, but lesser than God. So they'd swear upon things like the temple, like their parents' grave, like their name or anything. And they would do this for two reasons. One reason, which is the most important reason, they would not be invoking God's name. Because as I mentioned, in the Old Testament, they were instructed to keep their oaths to the Lord. So by not invoking the name of God, they did not have to follow through with the oath. They were like, I'm not under judgment. I can swear upon these things, have the benefits of seeming more trustworthy, of more worthy, and more being more trusted, and not have any detriments of actually having to fill the oath. 
And what's interesting about this is the Jews were playing this technicality game with God. They're like, as long as I don't do this, I'm not under judgment. But that's not true. In fact, technicality games, if you didn't know, don't work good against God. God understands the meaning of your heart, and he does care about the validity of your word. And then another reason why they would be doing this is because it made them seem more trustworthy. And this is something we even do today. We may not say, I swear upon the church or I swear upon my mother's grave, but you know what we do say? Who here has said, I promise? Who here has said, pinky promise? You know what else we say instead of pinky promise? I pinky swear. Has anyone heard both those lines used? Has anyone heard both pinky promise and pinky swear used? Or how about this? I cross my heart, hope to die. That's a form of swearing also. So why do we do this? We typically do this to seem more trustworthy or if someone is doubting our validity, we do it so that they believe we're more valid. I've said I promise. One such occasion is when I had my friend, I promised if he chewed on wasabi for 30 seconds, I'd give him a couple cards. It worked. I gave him the cards. I fulfilled my oath. But we're instructed not to do this. As Christians, our word, our validity is not on us. We don't need to give ourselves the authority by saying, I promise. And we aren't supposed to swear upon things. And even if we do, we are still bound by it. God cares about our oaths and our swears and our promises. In fact, what James is saying here, he's not saying that oaths and vows are sinful. He's saying, don't do it so you're not under judgment. Because just like teachers are told not, not just like everyone's not told to become a teacher because you're under extra judgment, we're told not to swear oaths or make oaths so that we're not under that extra judgment. Because when we break those, what does that do? makes us seem untrustworthy. Like, ask yourself, when you tell your child you're going to do something versus when you tell your child, when you say to your child, I promise I'll do something, which one do they get more upset over if you don't do it? The children like, but you promised you would do this. They don't say, well, you said you'd do this. They're like, you promised. They make a big deal out of it when you promise things. That's because when we promise something, it does put more judgment on it. It does put more scrutiny on it. And just think about honesty over the last couple of years. Who here thinks that the media was untrustworthy for all these years? And actually, statistically speaking, the media is one of the most untrustworthy things that we have. But why don't we, take, why don't we swear? Why don't we make oaths if God had a standard for it? And it's because just like Christ, we're supposed to be a reflection of Christ. We're supposed to submit, submit ourselves to Christ. And what did Christ do? Did he swear oaths? No, Jesus didn't swear. He didn't make oaths upon anything. His word was his word. And we're supposed to be a reflection of that. We're supposed to submit to his word and submit as his word, submit under to be truthful, our, the validity of our words into Christ. And just like how we aren't supposed to make ourselves untrustworthy, just like how the media did, like think about how it was over the last couple of years. Who is, like, I'd say we've had a lot of experience with sickness over the last couple of years. Is anyone sick of sickness? Is anyone sick of wearing masks? Who wants to wear a mask again? Who would like to never wear a mask again? Yeah, right? Masks were terrible. But did you know that in America alone, 1,069,490 people died of COVID? In America alone? Did you know that you, there's a war in Ukraine and thousands of people driven from their homes? 
Did you know that there's an entire list of genocide watch lists of countries that we're worried about committing genocides or might be in the process of committing genocides? We have all this suffering in the world. And let's look at COVID in America. Whether you thought we needed to get vaccinated or whether you thought every business needed to be shut down or maybe you were like, I'm just going to get sick. That is an organic vaccine. That's how God intended it. Or maybe you social distance or maybe you're like my grandmother and she's like, we're celebrating Thanksgiving. I'm old. If I die, then at least I had Thanksgiving. (laughs) Oh yeah, you know, someone had that experience too. But what we can all acknowledge here is that people suffered. At least hundreds of thousands of families lost someone. Members of our church lost people to COVID. And even if it wasn't a large percentage or even it wasn't likely to lose someone to this disease, someone suffered. And what does James tell us about suffering? Because James addresses the issue of suffering. What James says, is any among you suffering, then he must pray. Is any among you cheerful? He's to sing praises. So what does James mean by suffering? Well, the word here, kakopathel, the Greek word is a very interesting word because it's an all-consuming form of suffering. It's discussing all types of suffering. It's typically used in severe cases, but it's like this black hole that encompasses all suffering. So what James is saying here is It doesn't matter if it's mental. It doesn't matter if it's physical. It doesn't matter if it's spiritual. You take all those sufferings to God, all of them. And it doesn't matter how small or how large. If you are suffering, you are to pray. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I think my little problems are too little for God's notice. But did you know that God tells us to come to him when we're tired and when we're suffering? when we're suffering. In fact, God cares so much about our suffering, he even mentions it in Revelations. And that's actually, even though the cross is the greatest example of God's love, I wanna read these verses in Revelations for you. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death, any mourning or any crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And something to take note here is we get stressed four times that God is going to be among his people. And do you, did anyone notice what's the first thing God is going to do? He's going to wipe away our tears. Aren't tears such a little thing to have any concern about? Like, we cry over everything. We literally have a saying that says, don't cry over spilled milk. Someone probably cried over spilled milk for that to become a thing, right? And yet God cares so much that before he says there's going to be no more death, he says he'll wipe away our tears. Before he says there's going to be no more mourning, no more crying, he says he'll wipe away our tears. And what that's telling us is no suffering is beneath God. No struggle that we have is beneath God. We're supposed to pray to him and submit it into his hands. And then as we continue on to the second part of verse 13 in James, what he says is, if you are cheerful, sing praises. And the word here for cheerful is really interesting. Ethaneo, I think that's how you say it. Don't quote me on that. But what's interesting about it is unlike kakopathel, it's a very streamlined, it's focused. It's not this all-encompassing word for feeling happy. It is specifically talking about if you're in good spirits. And what's really special about this word 
is it means that suffering and this are not mutually exclusive. You can be experiencing suffering and be in good spirits. You can need prayer and be praising God. Maybe you have cancer, but you're like, thank you for the life I've given. You can praise God. That does not mean you don't need prayer. I don't know about you, but I've had times in my life where I've suffered and struggled, but had moments of joy. I'm like, should I feel bad that I feel happy? Shouldn't I be suffering and sad? Something terrible has happened. But no, they're not mutually exclusive. You can have moments of joy and moments of suffering. And that can be really hard to acknowledge at times. But with our suffering and with our joy, we're to pray and submit both to God. We're singing praises to God because times are good. We're giving that to God. And, you know, just like Robbie mentioned, we need a choir. And God wants us to sing. You might be one of the most tone-deaf people in the world. You know what Revelation says you're going to be doing in heaven? Singing. (laughs) <laughs> but as we continue through verses 13 through 18, because James goes on to sickness, and what he says is, any among you sick, then he must call for the elders and the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and a prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he's committed sins, they'll be forgiven of him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so you may be healed. An effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So James gives us a lot of information here, and we might have a lot of questions. One, what is the first thing that James tells us to do? What is something that he tells us to do? He tells the sick person to seek out the elders. He, in fact, stresses that it's important. He says they must seek out the elders. And the elders are to pray over them and anoint them with oil. And then they're to confess their sins and their prayer of faith will restore them and the Lord will raise them up. And then the whole church comes in and they're to pray over them and confess their sins to one another because a righteous prayer is what's accomplished much. And the reason why this is important is we might have a few questions. It's like, what's the purpose of the oil? Right? Like who here likes oily hair? No one. So why would we pour oil on it? Uh, one reason that people might think is, believe it or not, oil actually has a medical use behind it. In the old days, olive oil, the oil that would have been used at the time, was used as a medicine. It was accredited to helping with toothaches, to being put on wounds, and even one doctor is quoted on saying that it was one of his best tools for curing certain forms of paralysis. So we might be thinking, okay, so oil means that we need to go to the doctors, get the best medicine of the time. However, this is highly unlikely, and the reason for this is James at no point accredits healing to the oil. What James accredits healing to is a prayer of faith. And he repeats it multiple times. A prayer of faith will lead to healing and a righteous prayer can accomplish much. So what is the oil for, you might ask? Well, what it comes down to, what's important for us to notice is the word anoint. The word therefore anoint has a specific meaning behind it and it is used in reference to anointing kings and priests. Now you might wonder, why is that important? Well, the practice of anointing priests was symbolic of surrendering them to God. So when we anoint a sick person with oil, what are we doing? We are lifting them up to God and saying they're in your hands. We're giving the sick person God, we're surrendering their life to God. And then we go into a bit about, James talks about confession, and he's like, confess your sins so that you might be healed. And then as James continues, what he says 
is therefore confess your sins to one another after that and pray for one another so that you might be healed. An effective prayer of a righteous person can accomplish much. So what does confession mean? Like, is that relevant? It is. And what do we learn from confessing our sins? Well, that sin can have an effect on health. It can have an effect on healing. And now I want to stress something. Just because sin can affect your health does not mean that it is or that it does. And the reason why I stress this is who here has heard the story of a Christian telling a sick person, I've heard it mostly with cancer patients, that if you repent of your sins, God will heal you. Who here has heard that story? Who here has heard the story where a person tells a sick person, you aren't being healed because you are sinful? Who here has heard the story where someone tells a sick person that if you are more faithful, you'll be healed? And I'm going to tell you that even though this verse indicates that sin can play an effect on health, doesn't mean that it does, and it is not our place to walk up to sick people and tell them that if they repent, they'll be healed. In fact, what we know is we're actually told in John 9 that sin doesn't always play an effect on our health. You know how we know this? Is because in John 9, the disciples and Jesus are walking down the road. And the disciples look at Jesus because they see a blind man who's been blind since birth. So this man has been blind his entire life. And they turn to Jesus, who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus responds to them. Jesus tells them neither. He is there to show the, there so that I can show my glory. And what that means is sometimes people are sick for the express people of express purpose of showing the glory of God. This man was sick his entire life, was blind just so that God could heal him. And, you know, some, we live in a fallen world. Sometimes you're sick because you're sick. Sometimes you're sick because that's how God is deciding it's your time to go. And then again, as I mentioned, sometimes you're sick for the express purpose of showing God's glory. So why does James mention sickness being related to confession? Well, because that is for you to self-evaluate. What if you have a sin that's preventing your healing? That is for you to look in on yourself and confess. It's not for me to walk up to someone and be like, you are a sinner. Could you imagine if we did get sick every time we sinned? Little Timmy lies, starts coughing. His parents are like, are you lying to me? He says, no, he gets the plague. You're like, ah, <laughs> confess, confess. It's like, no. So sickness isn't always related to sin. And what else does James go into? He says, an effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So what's a righteous person, you might ask? Am I righteous? Do you think you're righteous? Should we line up all the righteous people and be like, you're our sick people prayer group. If we have all of you pray for them, one of your prayers is going to get through and God will answer and be like, you're healed. Should we do that? No. And before I move on to, luckily for us, James tells us what a righteous person is, but before I go on to explain what a righteous person is, I want to stress one more thing for those of you who might not be convinced on not telling a sick person that they're a sinner. James tells everyone to confess because a righteous person's prayer can accomplish much. He doesn't say it's the sick person's righteous prayer. So what if it is your sin that is stifling whether or not a sick person is healed? What if it's the non-sick person's sin being the reason why a sick person isn't healed? What if God wants your prayer to be the one that heals the sick person? What if he's like, I want your righteous prayer? 
So he tells us all to confess, not just the sick. But so what is a righteous person? Luckily for us, James gives us this fantastic example of Elijah. Who here knows the, story, the stories of Elijah? Who here likes Elijah? If you don't know Elijah is, he's practically one of the Old Testament super prophets. And I call him a super prophet because he didn't die. God called him up to heaven in a burning chariot and he never died. But what Elijah is known for, one of his most famous stories, is the two pyres. So the two pyres are Elijah had one pyre and then these priests of Baal had another one. And he challenged them. It's like, whichever God lights their pyre on fire wins. So he had 200 priests doing their dances, praying to Baal. Nothing happens. Elijah's like, is he on the toilet? And they're like, yeah. So Elijah gets his pyre all wet, like the most unburnable thing ever. Prays to God. God lights it on fire. He goes and kills the 200 false prophets of Baal. Then Elijah is what James accredits him to, prays to God that there is no rain in Israel, and the reason why is to punish them during the time, for three and a half years. Then after those three and a half years, he prays to God, and bam, it rains and produce happens again. Like God responded to Elijah's prayer. But you want to know what James says about Elijah? What James says about Elijah is Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again and the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruits. So that's our example of a righteous person. But what did James just tell us? Elijah was a sinner. Elijah wasn't perfect. You know how I mentioned those priests of Baal? Well, after he did that, Jezebel, who was a priestess or a prophetess, swore that she would kill him. She broke rule number one. She swore. But she swore that she would kill him by the end of the day. And what did he do? He ran away. Now, granted, I don't blame him for this. If a culty lady was threatening to kill me, I would probably run away too. Like, I don't know about you. Culty ladies are kind of scary. But what Elijah did that baffles me is he prayed to God to kill him afterwards. He's like, there's no other righteous people, just kill me. And God denies it of him, shows him that there's more righteous people. But what's kind of baffling is he just had fire fall from the sky and ignite a wet pyre of wood. Did he not think he could pray and have fire fall on Jezebel? Why did he doubt? Then we have the examples of Paul and Peter And for those of you who don't know, Paul was a sinner even after he became a Christian. He talks about it. What he says is, I do what I hate and not what I love. And then what we might be questioning is like, what's Peter's big sin? Well, what I consider Peter's big sin is he denied Jesus Christ three times. Not only did he deny Jesus Christ three times, he denied him three times after he told Jesus he would never deny him. What Peter said to Jesus on the night that he was going to die, he's like, Lord, even if everyone else leaves you, I never will. I will go to death for you. And then not even 24 hours later, he's denying Christ. And yet, we look through scripture, God answers Peter's prayer for healing. God answers Paul's prayer for healing. Did you know that Paul healed a dead person back to life? The guy fell asleep during a sermon, fell out a window and died. Paul went and prayed over him and he resurrected. But these men were sinners. And so what does this let us know with Elijah and Paul and Peter is that you don't have to be perfect to be a righteous man. What we learn from the confession also is that when you confess, it is never your righteousness that makes you righteous, but it's the righteousness of Christ. It's Christ's righteousness 
righteousness through you. So it's not a hunt for a righteous person. It is about us confessing and submitting ourselves to God. Because just like Peter, Paul, and Elijah, they submitted themselves to God. And I've just given these examples of sinners having their answers prayer and their prayers answered. Um, something that we as Christians make the mistake of is we like, who here has heard the phrase, God didn't answer my prayers? Who here has used that phrase? That phrase is, in a sense, an act of arrogance on us that we think God has to say yes to our prayers and that God can never say no. The truth of the matter is, there is no such thing as an unanswered prayer. God sometimes says no. And I'm going to give you an example of God saying no. Who knows King David? Probably one of the most famous people in the Bible, a man after God's own heart. So the story that I'm going to use is Nathan goes to King David and confronts him on his big sin. And for those of you who don't know what King David's big giant sin was, David's big sin was he slept with a man's wife and then proceeded to have that man murdered because he conceived child with her and he was scared of him. So Nathan goes and confronts David, does this whole parable about how this man took this poor man's sheep, and David confesses his sin. He repents of his sin. He's like, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan's like, God forgives you, but the child that you conceived in this sin will die. And then the child proceeds to get sick, and David, for an entire week, puts his face in the dirt, fasts and weeps, and prays to God that the child might be spared. He gets to the point where his servants are coming to him, trying to feed him, but he's rejecting him. So when the child dies, they stand away from him and discuss, it's like, what do we do? He was like this morning and weeping while the child was alive. He might do himself harm. Like, how can we tell him the child is dead? And David, being a man of God and perceiving them, he knew that the child had died because he already knew what the punishment was. And they're like, how did you do this? Like, how can you be like getting up and eating? Because he gets up and eats. He stops crying. He gets himself out of the dirt and eats. And what David tells them is that he wept and he cried for the child because he thought the Lord might be gracious to me that he might live. David believed in the power of prayer. James believes in the power of prayer. Prayer does have power, but it is not a ritual that we can use to compel God to do what we want. It's not. We never will have that power. When we pray to God, we're petitioning him. We're not compelling him. We're not making him do what we want. So what does this tell us? This tells us to give authority to God, to submit to him. And trust that no matter the outcome, whether it's the outcome that we want, that it's the right one, that God has a plan and God will do what he sees fit. Not to think that prayer is useless, but God will do the desired outcome. And we might not always understand that. David lost a child. Can anyone think of a more righteous prayer than that for your child? I don't think we can. And it's hard because I more rather be like God ignored David in this moment, but God told David no. So it's about submitting to God. And as we continue on to the final part of what James instructs us to do, he tells us this, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. 
So this final section that James gives us is actually really interesting, and it's caused some struggles with people because we get stuck on the wrong thing. But first things first, who is James talking to? He's talking to believers and Christians alone. He's not talking to non-believers. So we know this because he says, my brethren, or my brothers and sisters, depending on your translation. And that phraseology is reserved for Christians. Whenever someone in the Bible says, my brethren, that is in reference to another believer. And he talks to them, and he's like, if any one of you wanders away. So he's not talking about evangelism. He's talking about a member of the church, at the very least a member, a believer who has abandoned the faith and wandered from the truth. Now, the truth is the gospel. The truth is the word of Christ, that he died for us and was raised again. And wandering, though, that's an interesting word. And the word used for it, the Greek word used for it, is a very broad word. And it's planeo. And this broad word for it can encompass any form of wandering. But the reason why we don't just think it's a Christian who's wandered and is tempted by sin and is struggling in sin is because of the consequence if they are not saved. And what is the consequence if they're not saved? It is that you will save their soul from death. So their soul is in danger of death right now, which has led many uh, scholars of the Bible to believe that this is talking about someone who's committed apostasy. For those of you who don't know what apostasy is, it is the action of abandoning the faith. It is the action of forsaking God, of knowingly being like Christ is not my savior, he's not God. That is what apostasy is. The reason why we think this is, as I said, is because their soul's in danger of death. A believer's soul is never in danger of death. So we go to this, and this person's soul's in danger of death, and Christians are told, and this is the duty of the entire church, not just the elders, not a sick person, but to pursue this person. And what's important to take note of, James does not care what sin they are committing. They could be committing the sin of homosexuality. It might be a man who abandoned his family and committed the sin of adultery. Maybe it's someone who's just addicted to really bad drugs. What is the church's job? The church's job is to pursue them, to chase after them, to pull them back into the faith. Their sin is not relevant here. But I am going to mention the two areas that people get stuck on. One is the fact whether or not this person was a believer. At the very least, we know that they're a member of the church. We don't know if they were ever a believer to begin with. People debate this all the time on, is this, an, is this a part in the Bible where someone lost their salvation? Is this just someone who was a member of the church? We don't know. And what I'm going to advise is don't be like me. Don't get stuck on that because in the end, it doesn't matter. The results are the same. Whether or not this person was a believer or was just a member of the church, the church's duty is the same to pursue them because in the end, their soul's in danger of death. If they are never a believer, then their soul's always been in danger of death. If they are a believer, their soul's in danger of death. It is our duty to pursue them. And something to another area where there's a little bit of a rut is the Greek here is actually really interesting and really vague, where some Bibles, depending on what Bible you have if you're following along, might imply or say that it's the person who pulls a person out of sin, and it's their soul that gets saved from death. Theologically speaking, this is super unlikely, and the reason why is because it's a believer. So what does the Bible say about salvation? How do we get to heaven? What's the only way to heaven? 
Jesus. Yes, that's the answer I was looking for. Because what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and light. None comes to the Father except through me. So the believer is already saved. They don't need saved from death. Only the wanderer can be the, act, the correct reciprocant of saving their soul from death and having their sins covered because they have wandered from the truth. They've indulged in sin. So as we come to a close, or something I forgot to mention, forgive me, um, something else to take note of is this is not a call for evangelism. Even though we are supposed to evangelize, this is a call for a pursuit. Who knows the story about the 99 lamb or the 100 lamb and the 99th who's wandered away? Yeah, we know that story because we know that God pursues believers. What we aren't told in that story is the tools in which God uses to pursue those believers. So, reason why I'm mentioning this is what if you are the tool to pursue someone who's wandered away from the truth to bring them back? What if God is saying, you are my chosen tool, pursue them? So we're here to submit ourselves to God and his authority on being a tool for him to use. So as we come to a close, I want to stress what the points that we just learned are. First, not taking oaths. The validity of our words, the validity of our words are to be left in God. They're supposed to be reflections of Christ. We're supposed to surrender that authority, not to ourselves and promises, but to God and not making promises. Then in sickness, in suffering, in health, in joy, in confession, in prayer, we're supposed to submit ourselves to God. We're supposed to submit ourselves to the Father. We lift these people up to God. We set them apart for God. And we set ourselves apart for God. All of James is about submitting authority to the Lord. And finally, when it comes to pursuing a wanderer, we're to be that tool of the Lord's, to be what he decides to send us forth and be in obedience to him and pursue them, even if they're committing a sin that we find absolutely heinous. You can despise the sin that they're in. You can think what they're doing is terrible, but it is still our duty to pursue them if they were a member of our church. So I'd like to close in prayer and hope that everyone has a good day. God, thank you for giving us this opportunity to come to church and hear your word and let us just remember to leave the validity of our words in your hands, to remember to give thanks to you and pray to you in our times of need and times of joy. And let us not forget those who wander from the church for they are your children too. And may thy will be done, amen.